Um, hi, everyone. Glad you're here. Thanks for coming for the last day. Um, hopefully today we'll kind of wrap this up in God's vision for our sexuality. And I am hoping that this will kind of be a catalyst that will lead to a lot of conversations that you can have with each other and with your youth leaders and with your parents, maybe, too awkward, um, and people who care deeply about you. So um, just a recap of where we've been. Day one, we talked about that sex is good. It's God's created thing. He created it, and it is good. Um, It's a good gift from God. And because of the fall, we've twisted sex into this consumer good. We've talked about how it was made as a covenant good, and we've changed it into a consumer good for us. And he's the God who redeems. Yesterday we talked about redemption, that he's the God who redeems. He's the God who brings life out of death, which is really, really good news, especially when you're going through something that feels like death, that he's the God of resurrection. And that sexuality is his. He created it, and so he's going to redeem it. It's really good news. And that you were bought with a price. Your body is no longer on the market. It's off the market, and it is free. So that should say, anyway, you get what I'm saying. So the theme passage for this week has been 1 Corinthians 6, or 1, 6, 13 through 20. And so I'm going to read that now. And today we're going to kind of talk, key in on verse 13 and the end of honoring God with our body. So think about that as I read it. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the member of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So in this whole passage, Paul has been insisting that our bodies actually do have meaning and purpose. We talked about on day one, we've been kind of in this like Gnosticism of like, hey, our bodies don't really even matter. And if they don't matter, I can do whatever I want with them. Or we end up like hating our bodies and thinking that desire is bad. But instead, Paul is, has this really beautiful and good vision of our bodies, that they matter and that they have meaning and purpose. And that our flesh, like our bodies, are for witness. They're for mission and for witness to giving glory to the God who saves. And that's what we're going to talk about today. What does it look like to honor God with our bodies and for our bodies to be a witness to who God is? Um, So we have to remember that witness in faithful singleness and faithful marriage, that's what we'll be talking about today, does not depend on our perfect past. It can't, right? Because we're not perfect, and so it can't depend on our perfect past. It has to depend on the God who's faithful to us. Um, So we're going to key in on this verse 13. The body is meant not for sexual immorality. Remember that was that word pornea we used, that Greek word, Um, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. In Christ, we are free, and what it means that we're free is that our bodies are now for the Lord. We're not enslaved to our sin, but we're freed up to have our bodies to honor the Lord. Our bodies are not for pornea, for that sexual morality. We talked about all the ways that it's on the market, that it's this consumer good. But they've been bought with a price. They're not our own, but they are the Lord's, and he has good plans for them. 
But we have to, in order to do this, we have to see God as like a loving father, right? Like that's like a prereq to all of this, that he has to be a loving father and we're his children. And that he gives us good boundaries and limitations, like because he loves us. Like that has to kind of be how we feel about that. So I have this story that I got from a book from Steve Brown, named Steve, a guy named Steve Brown. It's called Radical Freedom. And he talks about the story. I'm not, he says, he's like, I'm not completely sure if it's true, but I think it's really helpful to understand our freedom in Christ. So I'm going to just kind of read that to you all, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. So Abraham Lincoln, he went to a slave market. There he noted a young, beautiful African-American woman being auctioned off to the highest bidder. He bid on her and won. He could see the anger in the young woman's eyes and could imagine what she was thinking. Another white man will buy me, use me, and then discard me. As Lincoln walked off with his property, he turned to the woman and said, you're free. Yeah, what does that mean, she replied. It means that you're free. Does it mean that I can say whatever I want to say? Yes, replied Lincoln, smiling. It means you can say whatever you want to say. Does it mean, he asked incredulously, that I can be whatever I want to be? Yes, you can be whatever you want to be. Does it mean, the young woman said hesitantly, that I can go wherever I want to go? Yes, it means you're free and you can go wherever you want to go. Then, said the woman with tears welling up in her eyes, I think I'll go with you. And I know that that is like an imperfect analogy, but I think it's a helpful way of us to think like, what freedom means when God has bought us and paid for us with a price that we want to follow him. Our, our obedience is always in response to his kindness. It's always in response to his love. Romans 2, 4 says that God's kindness leads us to repentance. And I think Russ has been talking a lot about this, that it's like returning home. Like that, that repentance is returning home to God. And that's what it really means for us to repent. Um, there's something extremely attractive about love. Like when somebody loves us, there's something really attractive about that, right? Like we're drawn to it. Um, and the more we experience God's love and grace, the more we want to follow him. I'm thinking, I was thinking about this, like for y'all, what that might mean. Like, um, if you have youth leaders in your life that really love you and you can tell they love you or teachers maybe that love you, when they give you a rule, you might think it's for your good. Like when I tell my students, like, please do not jump off the roof. (laughs) Like I, in which I have had to tell them that we have some rambunctious boys. (laughs) I, it's for their good, right? I really believe that they only have two legs and that they might break one of them or both, and that would be really bad for them. But, like, if they can tell that I really love them and care about them, then hopefully the response would be to listen to what I say, right? That I would not just be making a bunch of rules for their bad, but it would be for their good. And our God is the same, but perfect. So he, he makes these rules for us because it's so for our flourishing, but it's always in response to his good news of the gospel. It's always in response to like his kindness for us. So um, I got this quote from this quote from a book by a man named Sam Albury, and it's about same-sex attraction and kind of God's God's like uh, view of that. And so I I would be like foolish to not acknowledge that some of you in here may be struggling with that. And if not that, it might be pornography or masturbation or you're having a hard time setting boundaries with your boyfriend or you've had sex with your boyfriend and you haven't told anybody and I said that on day one I don't know your story and this feels so bizarre for me to be standing up here and not know my audience and to talking to you about that but I I love this quote because he says like 
we sometimes start at the outside, right? And we're like, don't do this, don't do this. And we forget to start at the center of who God is and respond to like, what, what might trusting this good God look like for me? And I, th- I, I want you to ask that question. So this is what I want most people to know, for them to be bowed over by the God of the cross and resurrection. And once they are gripped by this, to help them think through what trusting in this God will involve. What will need to be given over to him, including our messed up sexuality? And so I think it starts with the cross and the resurrection. That's where we have to start, is the good news of who God is for us. And then out of that, the response is, what does trusting this good God look like for me? And I hope that if you can relate to any of those situations or there's something that you're hiding, I hope that you you can talk to somebody that trusts you, that you trust, and that I hope that their response to you will be nothing but love of the God who loves you and cares about you. And I hope they'll look you in the eye and say, this changes nothing about the way I see you. And I love you and I'm so glad you told me. And so I hope and pray that you'll find somebody that you can be vulnerable with and who can walk through that with you. So I think that really matters. It's a big step to healing. But I hope you also will start with the good news of who God is for you, that he rescued you and he loves you right where you are. Um, So we're going to look at this idea of what does Paul mean by honor God with your body? What is he looking like? And I hope that out of this, that we have started at the center of who God is, and so we're coming out of here to say, like, well, what does trusting this good God look like, and what are the good boundaries he's set up for us? Um, Christians have always seen the work of glorifying the Lord in the body as as work that can be done in two states, faithful singleness and faithful marriage. God has created boundaries for our sexuality, This is not to squelch it, but to hold it appropriately. He's created good boundaries so that in those boundaries we flourish. Um, This is an illustration I pulled from somebody else. It's a a ribbon, when it's like left to its own devices, creates fords and canyons that can actually really be destructive. So if it doesn't have a dam or something to work on, it starts creating all these fords and canyons. And it can be really destructive, right? But if it has a dam and some boundaries, it actually allows for flourishing to happen so that life is able to be sustained and to grow. And so God has given us these boundaries that say, like, hey, if you live inside these boundaries, like, that's the best flourishing. Like, I've created these boundaries for you, and that's how you're going to flourish. And so one of these is singleness. Y'all, any of y'all familiar with the Babylon Bee? Okay, yeah. So they put up this, they are like a Christian satire, and they put up this article, Local Woman Looking to Return Gift of Singleness. <laughs> yeah, that's me. Um, so like I said, some of you, I think you all know, like I'm 27, I'm single, so I'll be talking a lot of my, out of my own experience of being single when we're starting to talk about this just because, well, I've wrestled with it a lot. <laughs> um, but all of us are going to be single for some portion. I would imagine a lot of you, because you're in high school, are not married, which means that you're single. So you are having to think through this, what it means to be single. Some of you might get married when you're in college. You might get married after college. The average for, I think people to get married right now is I think for women is like 26 or 27 so it's kind of getting later and later so you might be single for a good portion outside of college too you might not get married right out of college and so I think it's something we have to think about and even if you're not single for long until you get married something might happen to your spouse you might be widowed and you might be single again and so there has to be a good and beautiful vision of singleness and I hope today that we'll have a beautiful vision of singleness and a beautiful vision of marriage. That not one is not better than the other, but they are both good. And God says that they're good in his word. So Paul speaks of it as actually as a gift, not something that 
we want to return, even though I have wanted to return this gift to the Lord. But he speaks in 1 Corinthians 7, 7. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, the other has that. But singleness is not just an absence of marriage. I did this like terrible, or I mean, it wasn't terrible, but this Bible study that was like a lady in waiting. But that's the, that's the message we get often is like, I'm just waiting, waiting for my husband. I'm waiting for my spouse, for my life to begin. But that's just not true. Like you can live a full and beautiful life and single and you can live a full and beautiful life when you're married. Like God is enough for you. And, um, and singleness has its advantages. Your time, you have flexibility in your schedule. I don't have a spouse or kids. And so some of my students can call me at 10 p.m because they just called this boy and told him they liked him and they don't know what to do about it and they can come over and we can talk about it because I have freedom. I'm probably just watching some TV on my couch or hanging out with my roommates. And I have a little bit more freedom to do that. Um, I have like a greater, singles sometimes have a greater capacity for friendship because they just have more time to invest in friends and that can be a real gift to being single and a greater ability to serve the Lord and you have more time. Like I do have more time than if I was married and had four children. Like I just do. And so I can use that time for the Lord. And sometimes I feel like I said this in the last class, like I can, that sounds like great. I get to be a slave for the Lord. That's awesome. Like, you know, and like that is not the case. I don't think that's a good vision of what serving the Lord looks like. Yeah, some of it for me actually looks like ministry because I work in youth ministry, but some of it is cultivating friendships. And some of it is, there's um, in this book, Faithful, she talks about, when her and her husband got married, before they got married, her husband had a lot of time and he would always play basketball with his friends in the morning. And um, and now because they're married and they have children, it just is not as easy for him to get out and play basketball. But playing basketball with his friends is a way to honor God with your body. Like it's a way to say like, I'm worshiping God in this way of this really fun sport that I'm playing. Um, in this other book I was reading, Real Sex, the woman talks about how there's a high percentage of athletes, like teenage girls and guys that don't end up having sex before marriage. And they're also, because they're, and they, she makes the point that it's possible that because there's this high percentage of athletes that don't, it's because they have this way to honor God with their bodies and use their bodies for something other than sex. They get to use it for like achieving a goal. They set a goal, they start performing better, they see their body work better, and they get to enjoy their bodies in a different way. And so I think we've got to expand our vision of what um, serving the Lord looks like. It's not just like I can, I'm doing all these things, but I can get to worship him with my body and use my body for those things. Um, and it's kingdom work. And there's sports to be played, there's art to be made, there's friendships to cultivate, and people desperate for an embodied witness to Jesus Christ. And singleness gets to look like that. Another point that I didn't put up on here is that in singleness, you, the church gets to be your family. <laughs> like, I don't have, like, I live in Chattanooga. My, my immediate family doesn't live close by. And um, I was, one way that I got to see this working at Rock Creek is I got in this really bad car wreck, like, maybe three years ago. I, we, I lit, like, I work on Lookout Mountain. And so I, it was kind of raining. It was like sort of a day like this. And I hydroplaned. My car went into a ditch and it flipped twice. And I immediately, like, my the assistant pastor was there. His wife was there. She followed me down in the ambulance. This older couple from my church was immediately at the hospital waiting for me. I had, like, tons of visitors that week and lots of people. An elder came by, him and his wife, and they prayed for me. And I got to see this beautiful picture of, like, the church being this family for me because my family isn't close by. And so 
Um, there's lots of ways that I've seen the church be my family in ways because I don't, I'm not married right now and I don't have that. And so I think that's another beautiful way we get to see the body of Christ at work in singleness. Um, yes. And the Bible is positive about singleness. Paul even said himself that it was better to be single than to be married. And because of the time that you have and the freedom that you have, and he honors marriage as well, but he also says it's better. And Jesus himself was single. And we have to remember this, that he is fully human. And he's the most fully human that ever lived. And if he's single, then that must mean that you don't have to be married to be fully human. Um, his singleness in no way diminished his humanity. He was no less because he wasn't married. Marriage, for all its blessings, cannot be intrinsic to being whole and fully realized as a person. And so I think we have to hold on to that. Like you, if you're single, you're a whole person now. And if you're married, you're a whole person. Like we get to hold on to that truth. Um, and it's a picture of faithfulness. When as single people, we don't have sex, we witness to the dignity and the purpose of our body. We witness to the fact that being human is not about selfish pleasure, but it's about glorifying God. We witness to the fact that there is more to life than easy indulgence, and we witness to the faithfulness of a God who empowers us to be faithful in singleness, right? Like, remember the neediness of the gospel? Like, the only way that we can really be faithful in singleness or marriage is that he has to empower us to be faithful through the Spirit. And we get to witness to the fact that Jesus alone sustains us in our singleness. I, um, being single has been a really, there, I think there are some people who, don't desire marriage and are single, and then there are people like me who really want to be married and I'm single. And that's been a really hard thing for me to wrestle with. And I go to a church with a lot of young married couples and a lot of young families. And I'm probably one of like two single people, two or three single people at my church. And so it's just a lonely, it's a lonely place for me. And um, I remember I had asked this woman to be my mentor and she had gotten married later in life. And so there's not, a lot of people in my church don't have the story of getting married later in life and that's been hard too, just to find someone to relate with. So I asked this woman to be my mentor. She got married a little bit later and I was just sitting across from her. I, we all know I'm a crier, right? We've seen it the last three days. And I was just crying and I was just like, I really wanna be married and I don't know if this is gonna happen for me. And like, I don't know like if the Lord's gonna provide somebody for me. And it was just a really lonely time for me and she looked across from me, and like she really, I could see compassion in her eyes, and she said, I think the question you're going to have to ask yourself every day is, is Jesus enough for you? Like, is he enough for you? And, I, and she said, that question will drive you to your knees. And it did. It has driven me to my knees, and I have had to ask over, alone, over and over again, like, Lord, are you enough for me? Can you be my daily bread? Can you be enough for me each and every day? And as single people, we get to witness to this ultimate relationship of us with Christ. We won't be married in heaven. Jesus said that we aren't going to be married in heaven, and so we get to witness to this fact that Jesus is enough for us, that he's this bread of life, and he's, that's the relationship that will always last for us. And so as single people, we get to witness to that. Um, but marriage... <laughs> Uh, so kind of flipping, so that's like a, good, a hope, a good and robust view of singleness and what it could look like in our churches. It doesn't always look like that, but I think it could. And now we're going to talk a little bit about marriage. When, as married people, you only have sex with your spouse, you witness the dignity and the purpose of the body that God made. This embodied one flesh union becomes a testimony to the faithful relationship between Christ and the church. So we're going to read a passage from Ephesians. 
5, 25 through 32. I'll read that now, and I want you to kind of see what Paul's saying about Christ and church. And just some, like, background. Paul, in this, like, passage, he's offering a set of guidelines for how husbands and wives should relate to one another, and then this kind of comes out. So he's kind of been talking to the church about, like, how should husbands and wives relate to one another, and what should that relationship look like? And so then he says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of, the, of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So this kind of feels like Paul's talking about husbands and wives here, and he's just kind of fleshing that out. And then he sort of throws in at the end, he's like, he talks about this, like, man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. And so you kind of get this, like, it kind of takes this, like, little turn. You're like, wait, whoa, Paul's talking about that. But I think when we think about that, it's Paul's really talking about this beautiful picture that marriage is of what Christ is for the church. Sex is like Christ's love for the church, and that sex unite two who are different. We've talked about this this week, like male and female, in one flesh. So we get to see this diversity in marriage of male and female and this unity in the fact that they're humans, right? And so in the same way, we get to see this, like, unity between Christ and the church and this diversity in that Christ is God, and we are not, and he's committed to being faithful to us. It is self-giving and gives radical fidelity, care, and grace to another. It tells, this passage helps tell us what marriage and sex is. It's a small patch of experience that gives our best glimpse of the radical fidelity and intimacy of God in the church. It's this beautiful picture of this radical fidelity that God has chosen us, even though we are the most unfaithful bride. He has picked us. We are his bride and he loves us, and he's, he's committed to us, and he is not going to let us go. <laughs> Good sex in marriage is mutual, delightful, and it's a reflection of God's love for us. And this means that we can recognize desire as a really good thing. We've talked about that, right? One of the girls, well, it was actually one of my girls in the class before, had said, tell me more about, like, desire and, like, I always think about desire and sexuality as being this really bad thing, or, like, I shouldn't have it. And we're, and this helps us to recognize that desire is God's idea. It's not like we just, it's not like he created sex and we found some way to make it pleasurable and we're like this back door into it. It's like God, God made sex and it's really good. And it's, he didn't, he could have made it dysfunctional so that you just have a baby, but he actually made it really good and really pleasurable because it's his good gift and it's his idea. And so we can acknowledge that pleasure and desires from him and that that is a reflection of his love for us, that he's given it to us. This desire is played out in marriage and we get to see a picture of who he is through it. Um, and all of this, we get to see that our bodies are a witness. So that's kind of where we're going to end. And um, I got a lot of this from this book, Faithful, and I would encourage you to read it. I think it's, I think it's a really wonderful resource, and I loved a lot of what she had to say. 
But Christian sexuality is meant to be a witness to the God who is faithful to Israel and to us. It's not about desperately waiting until you get married and then finally having it all, but sex is a witness to what God has done in our lives. Bodies are not commodities. They're not throwaway sites for gratification, but they're instead temples of the Holy Spirit, and they're meant for real good and real witness to the world. Sex, having it if you're married and not having it if you're single, is kingdom work. It's a witness to the God who frees us for faithfulness. Um, we talked a little bit about on, on Tuesday. I don't know what time it is for me right now, but I think it was Tuesday. And we talked a little bit about how we often make bodies into idols, right? They're supposed to be pointing us to God, but instead we kind of make them the ultimate thing. We do this, right? Even in relationships, we like put people in the place of God and we make them the ultimate thing. And bodies can't be worshipped, but they do matter. Bodies, sexual bodies, faithful in marriage and singleness are signs that point us to the reality of God. So she talks about this idea, and I took it straight from her, but that we can move away from bodies as an idol is more to an icon. So in the Eastern Orthodox Christianity, they have pictures of, um, I pulled one out, but they have pictures of Jesus and of saints that they put around in the church as icons. And the idea is that it's a, it's taking something invisible and making it visible to point you to the invisible thing, if that makes sense. And so the bodies of Jesus and the saints were portrayed in careful, disciplined ways meant to point towards God. So it's a physical means by which you could enter into the presence of God. Again, it takes something that's invisible, like we can't see Jesus right now, we can't see God, but it takes Jesus and puts him in a picture that's meant to point to who Jesus really is. It's not meant to stop there. And I wonder, and she wonders, if our, if our bodies could actually be used more in this analogy, like icons. Could we become, as sexual beings made in God's image, witness to the reality of our Creator? In embodiment, the faithful creature may allow us to see something about who God is. So she has this quote and says, The idol is an idol because it is not transparent. Instead of directing us beyond itself, it captures us and leaves us there stuck. So think, I thought about like the golden cat, like I just captured them and left them there, and they're stuck. But unlike the idol, the icon points us to something beyond itself. It provokes a vision. The icon asks us to look beyond it to see how it testifies to the truth about God. And so our bodies, when by grace, when God allows us to do the kingdom work of faithful, of sexual faithfulness, witness to the reality of a God who loves and is faithful to his people. It's an imperfect picture, that's for sure, because if anything, we are a hot mess, right? And so it's an imperfect picture, and we're not God. God commits to us. He's God, and we're not. But sex, marriage, family, desire, all of it is relative. It testifies to God's future in which the whole people of God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, will be united fully, finally, faithfully, and mutually to Christ. Faithful bodies, our bodies, get to be a sign of what God is up to in the world, but they're not the point of the story. Sex is a pointer to the end, but it's not the end itself. And so we get to be a God, we get to be a witness to the God who says to Israel, I will take you for my wife forever. I will take you for my wife in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will take you for my wife in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And remember, that's from Hosea, right? <laughs> the prophet who marries a prostitute the one who's unfaithful the God marries us who's unfaithful and 
It points us to reality when we'll be united with him and we'll finally be whole. The sexual culture of our fallen world gives us the narrative that a body is something to be consumed. Christian sexuality recognizes that the body is meant to be a witness. Sex is a witness to what God is up to in our lives and a witness to the God who's always faithful. So, I think that's it. <laughs> I ended early again. Um, do you all have any questions or what questions do you have? I'd love to answer any questions. Or you're welcome to stay after, too, if it feels kind of embarrassing to ask him in front of everybody. Any questions? Y'all, oh, yep. Yeah. So we kind of looked, um, oh, so your question, um, just so everyone hears, is that can I talk, expand more about why desire is a good thing and how we can move towards desire being a good thing and shy away from it being a bad thing? So we kind of talked about how God has created us all with desires, right? And in our sexuality, on day one, we talked about it being we're made for connection, we're made for desire of that connection. So God's given us that inbuilt desire and desire for a husband and wife, like sexual desire, he made it and it's his. And we talked about how kind of like studying the original design on day one, we talked about how it's sort of like living in this original design for creation is where we flourish. And so God has made us for us to live out that sexual desire in marriage with a man and a woman. And so it's a really good thing. And the, the opposite of that would be we say, no, 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 no to desire. We get married, and then I have friends who are on their wedding night are just feel like they're doing something wrong. And so instead saying, yes, desire is a good thing, and it's okay, but it's supposed to be lived out in this context. Does that make sense? Yeah, like, and we kind of talked a little bit about it being, like, made for this covenant and not for us. And so we've made it into a consumer good that's for us. And so when that happens, it causes a lot of chaos. Does that make sense? Okay. It's a big question. It's a good one. Any other questions? Here. Oh, sorry. I was like, where is that voice coming from? <laughs> Hi. Uh, okay. You, you said if you can lose your holiness from losing your virginity, then you can preserve your holiness by keeping your virginity. Did I say that? Yeah, can you repeat the quote back to me? <laughs> Mm-hmm. You are not the creator of your own Yeah. And, like, that idea has just sunk so deep into our culture of, like, you maintain your holiness or you lose your holiness. Mm-hmm. Can you just, like, re-emphasize that? Because it was so good. Yeah. And so necessary. And I'm sure I butchered it. I just want you to say it again. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that idea that we can, like, create our own holiness. We talked about that yesterday with the we have this idea that if I maintain my purity, if I don't have sex with anybody, then somehow I've made myself holy. And instead, God is the one who makes holiness in us, right? If we 
we talked about some rules of like the purity culture that got kind of off. So one of them would be like, I can get marriage as some reward, like for getting purity, for gaining purity. And so that idea is like, if any of us were gonna, if marriage was some sort of reward for a purity contest, all of us would lose. Like none of us are pure and because we're broken. <laughs> like all of us are sexually broken and sometimes that gets mixed up. We think that I'm better than this person because I haven't done these things or they're better than me because they have. And that's just a wrong way of looking at it. Instead, we're all, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And like, we are all in need of God to wash us and to make us clean. And so holiness comes from him only. And he's the only pure one. And he's the only one that can create holiness in us. And that's a gift from him. Does that help a little bit? Yeah. Thanks. Glad that that stuck. Any other questions? Guys, it is really... Oh, yeah, go ahead. I'm just thinking, I'm going to pose this question for maybe a a girl who might be thinking this. Um, So thinking about desire, and that that is a good thing in the context of marriage, Mm -hmm. what would you say practically to the girl who is experiencing desire outside of marriage? Like, where do you... What would you say practically Like in a dating context, maybe, or yeah, in anything? Context, yeah, obviously, like, these are all wonderful things in the context of marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it is so hard to say, like, no desire, no desire, no desire is from the yeah. world. Like, how do we make that transition? That's something that I experienced yeah, totally. in my own marriage. It was that, no, 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 okay, now go ahead and turn it on and make it a really good thing. Yeah. Yeah. I have some thoughts, uh, but like I'm one, I just have some thoughts. So you should ask other people too. Um, But so the idea is like how, like you're saying, like we say no, no, no to desire. Then all of a sudden it's just like as if I can flip on a switch and be like, yeah, this is a good thing. Um, I think we have to have a good idea of what dating is. And dating is closer to friendship than it is to marriage. So I think we try to make it closer to marriage than it is to friendship. And so dating, the best, like, was it in this class? Maybe, I think it was in the, actu- the other class, actually. Somebody asked me about dating. And I, the best definition I've heard is two friends who like each other who don't know if they're going to get married or not. And so I think that if you kind of can live in that context, if you can live in that context of, like, this is my friend, and that means that, the anxiety comes when we try to put covenant things onto dating. And so we say like, hey, I own your time, I own your body, I own your affection, I own all these things. Well, that's not true because you haven't made a vow. And so those things aren't mine. And so I think that we have to sort of think through like what does dating actually look like? And well, that means that you're, you're closer to my friend and I wanna honor your body. And so I do have these desires, but it's not loving to you for us to act out on them because we're not married. <laughs> and like, and so I think we have to sort of live in that context of what dating is and say this is a really good thing 
and it's for marriage, and it, it like it flourishes in that context. Like, I um, am dating a guy now, and like, boundaries are hard. <laughs> They're just really hard, and I think that we have to be like, nope, this is like, this is for marriage. It's not for us right now because we haven't made that commitment to each other. And so, reminding yourself, this is a good thing. My body was made for this, but not in this context. If that makes sense. Yeah. Mine too, girl. Yeah, through sin. Like we don't we don't completely think of it rightly anymore. Because when when the fall happened our relationship with God broke, our relationship with ourselves, with others, and all of creation broke. <laughs> and so we kind of feel that brokenness in everything we do. And so, and we all have this like longing for it to not be, right? We have this way, these ways in us that we long for it to be whole. And so we feel that in all of those ways, down to like our thoughts our behaviors, our actions, all of it is broken because of the fall. And so none of it is without sin. Does that make sense? Does that help clarify a little bit? Okay. Yeah. I was in my dorm room the other day, and we were talking about one of the uh, more hotter teachers because he was. And yeah. so, <laughs> right on. You know, so there was a couple of young girls who were tittering about, oh my gosh, he's so hot. And I was like, yeah, he is. And our chaperone, uh, she was like, you know, it's not okay to desire a married man. And I was like, well, it's okay to look. That was my opinion. You, can look, you cannot touch certain things like uh, in the wiggles. <laughs> yeah. Theology of the wiggles. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you're asking my opinion on that? Yes. <laughs> well, I definitely don't want to go against your chaperone. Um, I mean, I think that, like, yeah, he's married. I mean, you can objectively think that people are beautiful yeah. because, like, I can think women are beautiful and men are beautiful and that they were created beautifully. I think it's what, what you do with that desire and what you, where your thoughts go. And I think you have to analyze that. I mean, of course you can say, I mean, maybe the language of hot is not like <laughs> the best. You're like, he's so hot, but you know, whatever. He, uh, but I think there is a part where you can objectively think that other people are beautiful. But I, I don't <laughs> completely know. I haven't really thought about that for long. So I would, I would want to think on that a little more yeah. before I said that that was my final answer. Okay. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they're God's creation, and so they're made, and we're all, yeah, I think acknowledging that beauty is acknowledging some of what is creation is, for sure. That's sort of my argument. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of what you do with it. So, any other question? I guess we're kind of done. Y'all, thank you so much. I've loved teaching this class, and so I'm really grateful. Thanks.